All right, well, good morning, church. Great to be with you today. No better place than to be in the house of the Lord, and no better thing that we can do than to open in His Word and hear from Him. And so let me invite you right now to do that. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. I'm fired up to get into this book. What an amazing book. This is a a powerful book. It's a monumental book. It is an important book. I'll tell you what. If you tell me what you think of Genesis, I can tell you what you think of the Bible. If you tell me your thoughts on Genesis, I'll tell you what you think about God. If you describe your thoughts on the book of Genesis, I can discern pretty accurately your thoughts on Jesus Christ. Because this book is important thematically, uh, and for the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at the first several chapters of Genesis, but this book is the foundation for where the Bible is going to go. And there are themes in the early chapters of Genesis that we're going to look at that are of the utmost significance. We're going to learn about the purpose of man, that man was created by God in perfection, that he was sinless originally, and he was intended by God to rule over his creation and have stewardship over. So that's his purpose. We're going to look at the problem of man. Because in Genesis chapter 3, we're going to see something's going to happen. All hell's going to break loose. Man's going to disobey. He's going to rebel against God, and he's going to fall under the curse of sin. And the rest of your Bible is going to deal with that problem. And then we're going to look at the promise of God to man. Because in the aftermath of that fall into sin, God's going to reveal to the, the that created pair, Adam and Eve, that he will send someone through the lineage of man, a savior, a redeemer, a messiah that's going to set the course straight. And so we're going to look at those powerful themes here in Genesis, all these concepts. If you get rid of Genesis, you might as well throw your Bible away. If you get rid of Genesis chapter 1, your Bible starts to crumble. And I dare say if all you did was eradicate the very first verse of this book, Your Bible makes no sense whatsoever. And what does that first verse say? Let's look at it together, shall we? Genesis 1.1, it says, I'm sure we all know it, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And that is foundational. I heard a Jewish Christian say, I don't know why you Western Christians always start with the Gospel of John. That's the roof. You don't build a house starting with the roof. You build a house starting with the foundation. And Genesis 1 is the foundation. And you know what? He's right. It's true because here we've got this theme of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you read from there all the way to the end of your Bible, to the end of Revelation, you see God creating again. He's going to be creating the heavens, uh, the new heavens and the earth at the end of your Bible. And so God bookends his Bible with creation. And in between, you've got a guy named Jesus Christ. And he is a creator. What's his first public miracle? Do you remember? It's a creative act. He's at Cana and he turns the water into wine. He's a creator. And we see him live out the gospel. And he goes to the cross for us. And he dies, pays the penalty, rises again. And those who come by faith, what is he doing? He is creating new hearts. And we who come by faith are new creations. The old has passed. The new has come. Amen? And so we've got a creator God. And we're going to look at creation today. And I'm going to take you through nearly six days of creation this morning so we got a lot of wood to chop so let's you're gonna have to listen fast all right so let's bow 
and then we'll dive in. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray your blessing upon our amazing adventure through this book called Genesis that is just a, a towering book, God. It means so much to our faith because if we don't understand this book, we don't understand Christianity. And so I pray that you will reveal to us truths found therein. May we uh, be illuminated to that and be in awe of your majesty, of your power, of your might, of your plan, of your provision, and of Christ who is pictured here. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to show you eight things that Genesis 1 teaches us about creation. All right? We read verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When? In the beginning. Right? You can't go back any farther than that. You can't think any earlier than the beginning. But when was the beginning? How, how far back was the beginning? Well, it depends on who you ask in church circles. You, you, you might get a, a bevy of different answers. Historically, uh, most people in church environments would agree upon a young earth. Okay, uh, That means that when they read the Bible, they read it literally. And they would discern that the earth was no more than six to 10,000 years old. And they would come to that conclusion because as you look at something called the genealogies, you know what those are? That's that point in your Bible where if you're reading through the book of the, uh, the Bible, all the books of the Bible in a year, that's where we all get bogged down is in the genealogies. And so-and-so begat so-and-so. And they lived X amount of years and they died. And so-and-so begat. And we call it the begats, right? It's, it's the genealogies. And so people would read that and they'd, they'd look at those lifetimes and they add them all up and they add up all the years and they've got the numbers, they do the math and they come to this conclusion that we're looking at uh, an age of six to 10,000 years for the earth, give or take a thousand years. And then there's another group in church culture that says, you know, I don't buy that. I, I, I think the earth is a lot older than that. It's got to be millions. It's got to be uh, billions of years old. You say, Pastor Scott, do you have an opinion on this? Well, you tell me. I've been talking at you since November. Have you known me not to have an opinion? <laughs> I absolutely have an opinion. But let me say this before I go on. I am not a scientist nor do I play one on TV or on this platform. And so I will only spew scientific facts at you if it helps us understand the text. But the text is where I'm going to camp out. It's the context, the, the language, the syntax that we're working with here. But I want you to understand something. When you read Genesis 1-1, so far in this book, the focus is not the age of the earth. You read that first verse, you don't walk away wondering how old is the earth. You should, you should be focused on the first four words, in the beginning, God. And those words assume something. So this is number one in your notes. It assumes God's existence. Your Bible does not try to convince you of God's existence. It doesn't try to come up with an explanation as to where he came from. He's already there when the beginning occurs. God is there when it gets rolling. Now, this is a book of beginnings. You're going to see the beginning of the universe. You're going to see the beginning of man. You're going to see the beginning of marriage, as we will see in a few weeks. You're going to see the beginning of a nation called Israel. But it does not address the beginning of God. And that's because God had no beginning. God is eternal. He's the one who has always been. He is the great I am, the self-existent one, and he is present right here in the beginning. Genesis 1 assumes his existence. Now, every human explanation for the origin of the universe has a problem because in those explanations, there really is no origin. 
There really is no source. If you asked an atheistic uh, scientist that question, you know, when, does the, when did the universe begin? How did the universe begin? He might start by saying, well, gas was floating through space. You know, and already you've got a problem. Where'd the gas come from? Heck, where'd the space come from? You know, and he might pontificate further. He might say, well, you know, this caused that, and that caused this, and this causes this, and that causes that. And he'd go back, 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 back in this infinite regression. But until you get to an uncaused cause, you have not answered the question, how did the universe begin? Genesis 1-1 answers that question about as clearly as you can come up with. In the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth. Now, why is it that people try to eliminate God from the origin of the universe? I think Romans 1 gives us a clue. What does it say in Romans 1? It says, although they knew God, and the word knew is very important, because what it implies is that every human being, I don't care who you are in your heart of hearts, there is an awareness of an almighty God. There's an awareness of a higher power, something greater than you. And Romans 1 says, although they knew God, they did not return him in their thinking why didn't they retain him in their thinking they'd rather forget about him because if if there's a god that created all of this around us that means we're accountable to him and nobody wants to be morally accountable to an almighty god a higher authority we don't like to be under authority But that authority is seen right here. The second thing that creation does in your notes, number two, it it is compatible with science. Creation is compatible with science. Now, people laugh at that statement. They say, Genesis and science? No, 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 you're you're confused. No, Genesis is is about faith. Faith and and science, those, those are two different worlds. Listen, I'm here to tell you, God created science. God created science. Science is fully compatible with God. Uh, Science does not oppose God. It's that some scientists oppose God, you see. Some scientists have confused themselves with science. And there may be a particular scientist that pops into your mind from the last few years who has done such a thing. I'm not naming any names. But there is one name I will mention. Back in the 19th century, there was an atheistic scientist named Herbert Spencer. And here's what Herbert Spencer said. He said that all that can be known can be categorized five ways. Everything knowable falls into five categories. Time, force, action, space, and matter. Time, force, action, space, and matter. And you know what? I hear that, and I got to say, Herbert Spencer, atheistic scientist, you agree with Genesis 1-1. Everything that you just talked about there is fully compatible with Genesis 1-1. Let's bring that verse back up on the screen and take a look at the words in this verse. It says, in the beginning, what's that? That's time. It says, God, what's that? That's more force than you can reckon with, buddy. Amen? What did he do? He created, well, that's action. What did he create? The heavens, well, that's space. And the earth, that, my friends, is matter. Time, force, action, space, matter. There you go. God and science, fully compatible. It's not at odds with science. God created all of that, and incidentally, he created without using 
any existing matter. Okay? Uh, he created without anything to work with. It came out of nowhere. Uh, Hebrews 11.3, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Meaning, he had no existing material that he worked from. All right. During the pandemic, I, uh, I kind of got into woodworking. I, I took an interest in this. Deanna had been on me for years uh, to learn, you know, you know, to be of value around the house. And so I began to dabble in that. And I, I you know, I, I, was, I wasn't one of these Greasons that are running around that can whip up furniture and cabinetry like that. But I did learn how to build a few things that we ended up using in the house. But I'll tell you what, when I, when I would go out in the backyard to build something, I didn't just blink it into existence, I had to have some materials. I had to have wood, which I'm not buying a lot of these days. It's pretty expensive, you know? But you got to have wood. You got to have tools. You got to have nails. You got to have screws. You know, I got to have Deanna come out, tell me I'm doing it wrong. I need (laughs) all of that stuff. God doesn't need any of that. He is a God that creates out of nothing. I believe in an ex nihilo creation. Ex nihilo is the Latin term. It means out of nothing. And as you're going to see, as we read further, you will see that God does form things out of matter that he has made. But he creates the matter. You're going to see Adam. He's going to form Adam from the dust of the earth. But I guarantee you, God created the dust. It all came from him. And he creates it without any pre-existing material. And some scientists, uh, many scientists, reject that in lieu of a a theory, and and it is a theory, called evolution. Evolution. And some will tell you, well, that's just settled science right there. Evolution is scientific fact. Case closed. Not so fast. If you've read Darwin, if you've read The Origin of Species, you will know that Darwin even admitted that there were holes in his theory. He said the fossil record does not support everything that I'm proposing here. Okay, He saw no evidence of transitionary species in the fossil record, and that was a problem for his theory. But he went ahead and he wrote the book anyway, get this, by faith. He wrote it by faith. He believed that eventually the fossil record would bear this out to be true, that discoveries would eventually be made uh, to bear out his you know, hypothesis. How, did, how has that worked out? Well, the curator of the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago at one point was a guy named David Robb, and he said this, and I quote, We are now 120 years after Darwin, and the knowledge of the fossil record has been greatly expanded. We now have a quarter of a million fossil species, but the situation hasn't changed much. We now have fewer examples of evolutionary transition than we had in Darwin's time. They went backwards. They went backward. There's a a theologian, apologist, uh, evangelist that I respect by the name of Ray Comfort. Here's what Ray Comfort says. He uses this following illustration that I find effective. He says, imagine, if you will, that billions of years ago an incredibly big bang uh, occurred. It came from nothing and, and nowhere, sending a massive rock spinning through space, which also appeared from nowhere. As the rock cooled, a brown, sweet, bubbly liquid formed on its surface. And as time passed, aluminum crept out of the liquid and formed itself into a can. It made a lid and a a tab on the top of the lid. Millions of years later, red and white paint fell 
from the sky and clung to the can, forming itself into the words, Coca-Cola Classic. Original formula, 12 fluid ounces. And you say, well, that's, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Nobody would buy something like that. And this illustration has been used with, with automobiles and, and watches and, you know, things that, that would require a designer. They clearly have a design, and therefore there must be a designer. And we call that the teleological argument for God. Uh, anything designed must have a designer. And if that's true of a soft drink can or a car or a watch, what about a brain? How about a human heart? How about an eye? So your body is infinitely more complex than any of those other items. And the idea that it came about by pure chance over billions of years is laughable. But despite that, if you conducted a scientific poll, you would find that most intelligent people believe in evolution. And that's true. Most intelligent people believe in evolution. And I think that the reason that most intelligent people believe in evolution is because most intelligent people believe that most intelligent people believe in evolution. And nobody wants to be the dummy, you see. Nobody wants to be controversial or left out. We all want to fit in. So if you believe in evolution, I just want to say to you, congratulations, you have more faith than I do. It takes a whole lot more faith to believe that over billions of years, mere randomness is responsible for highly complex carbon life in this biosphere. It takes more faith to believe that than it does to believe in an uncaused cause that created time, force, action, space, and matter. All right, well, I think we've gotten... Almost all we can out of verse 1. So let's move on and look at verse 2. It says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And this is number 3 in your notes. It's a very powerful point. Number 3, creation involved the whole trinity. The whole trinity. Gang's all here. We already looked at verse 1. In the beginning, God. The word for God is the Hebrew word Elohim. Elohim. It's a name. And it ends in I am in English, and that suffix indicates plurality. There, are, there is a plural nature to this, and yet that doesn't mean that there are multiple gods here. It means that there is one unified being whose name begins with a capital E, this proper noun here, Elohim, and within that unity there is a personhood, a Godhead. you got three separate persons unified in their divine essence, and we as Christians understand that concept. We call that the Trinity. What does John 1 say? John begins the same way Revelation does, in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. Who's that? Well, that's Jesus Christ. He is the Word. He is the Logos. And it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. That is a Trinitarian concept. You've got the Father, you've got the Son right there, and it goes on to say uh, that, that all things were made through him, and without, them, uh, without him was not anything made that was made. All right? Paul echoes that in Colossians 1.16. He says, for by him, Jesus, all things were Created by him, right? In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 
And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Jesus is not only present at creation, he's instrumental in creation. Things are created through him, by him. And now in verse 2, in Genesis 1, we see also the Spirit is there. It hovers over the surface of the water. So you got the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That's the entire Godhead. All three, we see it early on, the first chapter in your Bible the Trinity, right here. But I want you to notice, it says, the earth was without form and void. I just want to tell you something about what that means. There are some people who read Genesis 1-1, and they, they read that God created the heavens and the earth, and they think, well, that's the totality. That is, that is, that is all of creation right there in one verse. God created uh, the earth, the sky, outer space, the planets, the moon, the stars, uh, the oceans, the trees, the animals, man, all of that. And then they read verse 2, and it says, And the earth was without form and void. And they say, Oh, no. Well, something must have happened. God completed his creation in verse 1. And by verse 2, it's without form. It's void. Something terrible must have happened. A catastrophe. A rebellion. Why, God must have had to, to wipe the slate clean right there. There must be a gap in between verse 1 and verse 2. A period of undefined uh, time during which God experienced a rebellion and had to start all over. And they call this the gap theory. What do you think about that, Pastor Scott? Well, I wasn't there. And as I'm reading, I don't see anybody else other than God and the angels, perhaps, being there either. And so I'm going to put this in the category of theory, and I'm not really much for putting a lot of stock in what's not there. And so I'm going to call hogwash on this right here. Okay, I just don't buy it. I don't buy it. Now, there are other ways that people interpret verse 1. They look at Genesis 1-1, and, and what they see is what, what could be called a summary statement. You know, God created the heavens and the earth. It's like, we're going to tell you that this is what God is going to do, and now we're going to tell you how he does it. It's like an umbrella statement for the rest of the creation account. That's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is that in Genesis 1-1, that is the creation of everything that we talked about. Time, uh, uh, time, what is it? Time, uh, force, space, matter, all of that. And then God takes that matter and works from there and continues on in the creation uh, account. I'm okay with either of those interpretations because they both assume there's a God. They both do not require any pre-existing material and they... They understand and affirm the authority of God. And speaking of that authority, now we look at verse 3. Here's what it says. It says, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And this shows us something. This shows us, number four, in your notes, that creation was accomplished by the command of God. How many of you believe God's in command? He has authority, doesn't he? He spoke and it happened. He opened his mouth, and it came into being. Now, that's power. How many of you feel powerful when you walk into a room and you go, Alexa, turn on the lights? You feel a little, you know, a little boost of power right there. Well, you can't do that with the whole universe. That's something only God can do. This is power. In the Hebrew, the, the, the way this would be rendered literally is light be, Right? And I just love that. It's emphatic. Incidentally, the first words of God that we hear him utter in the scriptures are this command right here. Let there be light. And that formula, there's a formula. Let there be. You're going to see that formula in chapter 1. I've counted them up 10 times. 
and its creation by fiat. Let there be, and there was. And this really works together. The idea of God speaking things into existence, that's in keeping with this whole notion of the Trinity, right? He, he commands it, and it is so. When you command something, when you open your mouth, when you speak, what are you using? Words, right? What was it Jesus is called in John 1? He's the Word. He's the Word, all right? The Word of God. And so God speaks, and through Christ, the Word, things come into existence. So we understand that creation is the command of God, which is the Word of God, who is the Son of God. And man, I just love how this unfolds. Isn't Scripture great? Isn't Scripture marvelous? And then we look at verse 4. It says, And God saw that the light was good. And you're going to see that. He's going to say things are good. And believe me, when God says something is good, that means perfect. That means there's no flaws. All right? And God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And this leads us to number five in your notes, that creation gives us a proper understanding of time. Of time. He calls the light day. Now, I'm going to give you a little pre-information. As you journey through the creation account, you're going to see this word day. And the Hebrew word used there is yom. Yom. And there are three ways to interpret yom that people employ. The first way is in relation to light, as I think we have seen here initially. We understand what that means. I think even in English, when we talk about day, we think of light. You know, When we say that we do something in the daytime, we know that we're referring to that light-filled portion of a 24-hour period. When it gets dark, we don't tend to call that daytime. We call that nighttime. So we understand that. So, so we've got this concept of day, yom, as light. Second way that yom is interpreted is as an undefined period of time. It doesn't have to be uh, a single day. It could be weeks. It could be years. It could be decades. It could be centuries. It's an indefinite period of time and I think we even have that understanding in our English usage of day sometimes it depends on the context like when grandpa starts talking he says well back in my day we know what he means right he's not talking about Tuesday he's talking about long ago when he was a younger man over a period of years such and such happened and so we get that whole idea but the the third way that yom is used in the old testament I would say the predominant way is as a 24-hour period, a, a solar day, if you will. And the reason I bring this up is because there are some people in Christian circles who say, you know, I, I don't believe that the days of creation were, were literal 24-hour days. I think they had to be much longer periods. They were ages. They, you know, God created over long ages. I believe in an old earth, a long age earth. I believe in day ages. These had to be, these could have been millions of years. They could have been billions of years. Now I will tell you straight up, I happen to believe that God created the universe in six literal 24-hour days. That is my personal view, okay? Now this is not an essential view. You disagree with me, I don't think you're going to hell. I hope you don't think I'm going to hell if I disagree with you, okay? But um, some people have said to me, how can you possibly think that, Pastor Scott? How could you possibly believe that God created the world in six days? How could he have created it in six days? And my response would be, the only question I've got is, what took him so long? 
I mean, is he God or is he God? He could have done this in six seconds. He could have done this in the blink of an eye. And I, I believe that a reason he did it in six days is to give us a model for a work week. And he certainly did. That's, that's borne out in Scripture. He worked six days and he rested on the seventh day. And we see the Sabbath mirrored in that day. And Scripture affirms that elsewhere. But there's something else here and it's this. The word yom. The word yom in Hebrew. Whenever you see it in the Old Testament and it's accompanied by a numeral as in the first day, the second day, the third day, as we have right here in Genesis 1, every time in your Bible when yom is accompanied by a number without fail, it is referring to a 24-hour period, a solar day. That is, that is every single time you see a number associated with it, that's what it's talking about. And furthermore, you've got this formula that follows. He says, and there was evening and there was morning. Uh, you know, the first day, the second day, and such and such. And so we've got these two components that we associate naturally with a normal 24-hour day. You've got uh, evening and you've got morning. Now, you might say, well, didn't he get it backward? I mean, when I think of a day, I think of morning and evening. Why does it say evening and morning? I mean, that, that's not what I think of. Well, you might not be Jewish. Okay? Uh, if you go to Jerusalem over the Sabbath, and I have... When does the Sabbath begin? It begins evening the previous night, right? At sundown. And it ends the next evening. And that's when y'all go down to Ben Yehuda Street and the shop's open and you party. Because now you can move on with life as usual, okay? But that's just something, it's not a hill to die on. It's just something interesting that I wanted to share with you. And, and it's in keeping with the way that I approach Scripture. I approach it literally at first, and then I move on from there. And I think that's a valid way to do it. But here's an interesting question that comes up. God says, let there be light. Now, we don't have a sun yet. Have you wondered about this? There's no moon. There's no stars. That all comes later. What is this light? Where does it come from? How do we mark a day without the sun? Because our, it's a, we call it a solar day, so it, it requires the, the, the sun. Now, I don't have a definite answer for you, but uh, I have an idea here, and it's this. We know from Scripture that God dwells in unapproachable light. We know from Scripture he is light, and in him is no darkness at all. We know that in the tabernacle and later in the temple, there was this Shekinah glory of God, which was this brilliant light. And so I believe it is possible and certainly understandable that God himself would have supplied the light on this particular day. And having not created the sun quite yet, uh, he, he supplies his own light to mark the days and provide the necessary light for the rest of creation as it progresses, as it grows. That's just something I wanted to share with you about that. Now let's look at verse 6. It says, And God said, Let there be an expanse, a vault, a dome. All right, rakia is the Hebrew used there. And he says, let's, let, let's have an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the water. So he makes this expanse and he gives it a name, okay? So what's, what's this talking about, this expanse that separates waters above from waters below? Well, scholars believe that there was at this time a canopy, a vapor canopy, like a water canopy. Uh, it could have been a dense fog that encircled the earth at that time. And uh, created some sort of a greenhouse effect, a hothouse effect. And you'd have this moderate, uh, temperate climate worldwide. And there would be no barren deserts 
just after creation. There would be no polar ice caps right after creation. It would be very consistent across the globe. Now, we don't have this vapor canopy, even though it does feel like that in the summertime in Burlington sometimes. But we don't have that globally anymore for reasons that we're going to get into later on. Um, But there's still a lot of water up there. And we get a lot of that water from time to time. I still can't believe the gully washers that I've seen after moving here. But there's another word that is used in this little section here. The name of this expanse, that God gives this expanse. The thing that separates the water above from the water below is this word heaven. Heaven. Now you and I have something in mind when we think of that word heaven. But there are three ways to interpret heaven. In scripture, there's the first heaven. That would be the atmosphere. Okay, that's the thing that birds fly through. That's the first heaven. In scripture, there's the second heaven. That would be outer space. That's where the planets are, the stars, and all that. Remember Star Trek? Space, the final frontier. (laughs) Except it's not. It's not the final frontier because there's a third heaven in scripture. This is the heaven of heavens, and this is where God's throne is, where his presence dwells, all right? But in this context, obviously, this refers to the first heaven. This is the atmosphere. And in verse 9, it says, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. Seas, that's, that's really just a word to describe all the bodies of water on the earth. Oceans, lakes, rivers, streams, okay? They're called seas in this passage. It's, it's all the water. And it says, and God saw that it was good. Is water good? Farmers love water. Is anything better than a cold glass of water? I mowed my lawns yesterday, and I, man... I couldn't wait to get inside and drink a nice cold glass of water. Uh, Water eventually is going to make up three quarters of the earth, uh, at least after the flood. 65% of your body is water. Around here it might be 50%, then another 25%, you know, Biscuitville. Um, It's 90% of your blood. It's, It's necessary for digestion, for reproduction, for respiration. We need water in the air. We enjoy water. We're sustained by water. I used to live in San Diego. No matter what kind of day I had, man, I could drive up to my house on the 101 right by the coast, and no matter what kind of day I had, I just had to look out at the Pacific and all would be made well. There's something wonderful, and that's why it's such a bummer uh, when I read Revelation and I see the, the new heavens and the new earth, and on the new earth it says, and there was no longer any sea. And I was like, that's the new earth? No sea? What are you kidding me? But you got to understand, for, for historically, the sea is what has separated us. It represents the unknown. And we will then no longer need sustenance in the traditional ways. We'll have glorified bodies. And so I think our perspective might change on all of that. But we're a long way from Revelation. So let's read on. Verse 11. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit, which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and morning the third day. This is the sixth point in your notes here. Creation provided for reproduction and sustenance 
of life. You see how God builds reproduction into creation? These plants have just been created and they can already reproduce immediately. They've got seeds. That means they're full-grown plants. God did not create trees as little buds that turn into saplings and grow. Okay, they're, they're, they're created as fully formed, fully grown trees. People have asked me, do you think Adam had a belly button? <laughs> sure, why not? Well, but, but he didn't have an umbilical cord. No, I know, I got, I, got, I got what a belly button is. But God created everything with the appearance of nature. So maybe he had a, I'm not going to die on that hill for Pete's sake, but I don't have a problem with the notion. I think if you'd have cut down a redwood at creation, you'd have found rings. I really do, because everything appears fully grown. Adam was not created as an embryo. He was created a full-grown man. Everything has the appearance and apparently the ability that comes with age. It's meant to go on, you see. And that is the provision of God. He wants it to replicate. Verse 14, God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. We still use those signs and seasons. Our calendar is a solar-based calendar. Okay, and so we, we, we operate uh, based on the relationship of the earth to the sun. And then he says in verse 15, And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. You see. You see where the focus continues to come back to? It's for the earth. The lights and the heavens are for the earth. They're for us. And that means that creation occurred with us. In mind. And this is number seven in your notes. Everything is created in relation to the earth. Uh, there is an intentionality on the part of our uh, Father, our, our Creator God, to create while considering our existence and our blessing and our enjoyment. And it was so, it says. And in verse 16, God made the two great lights. The greater light to rule the day, what's that? That's your son. That's your sun. And the lesser light to rule the night. And that is the moon. Who benefits from the sun and the moon? We do. And see, this is all intentional. He creates these things for our enjoyment, for our provision, for our blessing. It's all for the greatest creation, which we'll get to next week. And we live right here on this, this, this globe in the middle of something called the Milky Way Galaxy. And I want you to understand something. Where Earth is situated in that galaxy, the Milky Way is about 10,000 uh, light years by 100,000 light years. And where we are positioned in the Milky Way is absolutely perfect for sustaining life. We are 93 million miles from the sun. Now, some people say, well, that's, that's just by chance. Oh, really? It's just by chance that we're 93 million miles from the sun, where the surface happens to be 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. What if we were where Venus is? Surface temperature on Venus, 850 degrees Fahrenheit. That's hotter than summer in Burlington. Uh, you'd be a crispy critter on Burlington, uh, or on, not on Burlington, on, on Venus. Same thing. Um, what if we were where Mars is? The temperature there dips to minus 200. We'd freeze to death. Life could not be sustained all by random chance, huh? I don't think so. 
Uh, is it by chance that we make 365 revolutions around the sun every year? What if we made 30? Well, our days would be a whole lot longer. Some of you are like, dude, I would love a longer day. I could get so much done. Yeah, but it would be uh, comprised of sustained burning followed by sustained freezing. Life would not be sustained. Uh, but you know, it's all by random chance. Is it by chance that, that we're uh, tilted, the earth, 23 and a half degrees on our axis, which gives us four beautiful seasons? Is that, is that purely by chance? Is it random chance that we've got a ratio of 79% oxygen to 20% nitrogen with 1% of various uh, variant gases? Is that, is that by chance? What if we were 50-50 oxygen to nitrogen? First guy to light a cigarette. There's your big bang right there. So no, this is, this is not random, folks. This is intentional. You know, and in that passage I just read, it said, he made all this, and then it says, and the stars. Like, after he did all of that, he just made the stars. I just love that. It's like, hey, Earth, I'm going to give you something pretty to look at. You know, just amazing. I used to think about the vast enormity of the universe, you know, uh, in my younger days. I remember watching the X-Files, and I was like, there's got to be life out there. There's got to be life beyond this planet. I mean, we're so arrogant to think that we're the only ones in the universe that has any life on our world. Like, why would God go to all this trouble if there's only going to be life right here? Well, listen, I don't know if there's life out there, but I know one thing. It was no trouble. It was no trouble for God to create what he created. And then I'm going to leave you with verse 20. Take a look at this. It says in God's, well, I'm not verse, we're going to go on, but I'll leave you with this point. God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm. And there's a line coming up I want you to underline. And every time you see a variation on this line, I want you to underline it, okay? Here it is. According to their kinds. You underline that. And every winged bird, according to its kind. Underline that. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill uh, the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. We're underlining livestock, all right? That's domestic animals, better use of uh, words there. And creeping things, every creep that you know created on this day. And beasts of the earth according to their kinds. All the non-domesticated, wild animals. What does this phrase that I had you underline mean? It's number eight in your notes that there was an established order among creatures. Our God is a God of order. And because he's a God of order, you know what that means? That means evolution is impossible. Evolution is impossible. What we notice here is that there is a kind of that creatures operate according to, and any movement that happens must happen horizontally. It cannot happen vertically. There are no vertical changes in the created order. You never see anything develop upward in the created order. Evolution the uh, evolutionary theory believes in transmutation, which says that over a period of time, species change. You know, tails fall off. Limbs grow where there were no limbs previously, and they alter and they morph and they change from one creature, one species, into another species. 
But we don't see any evidence of that. There's zero evidence of that in the fossil record, as I've said. Uh, you, you ever had a, a, a boysenberry? It makes for a delightful pancake syrup. Boysenberries did not exist prior to 1934. And they went into a lab and they took a loganberry and a raspberry and a blackberry. And they made a boysenberry. Fused them all together. They didn't make an orange. Okay? They didn't make a watermelon. It was still a berry at the end of the day. It didn't change species, all right? And there is a plethora of breeds of dog out there. Some of you guys got represented in your households all different kinds of dogs, different sizes, different shapes. They look different, they eat different, they talk, they sound different, they smell different, all right? They're all dogs. They're all dogs. There are way, way, way too many breeds of cat. No cat has ever morphed into a dog, unfortunately, all right? I'm going to get emails. I'll tell you what, if you want to email me about what I just said, you can just send that to lydio.banana at thelambschapel.org. He'll answer your complaint. But uh, there is, let me just say this. There is room in the created order for evolution on a micro level. Okay, micro, incremental, very small transitions that happen horizontally. Uh, there is no allowance in the created order for a vertical, macro level evolution. Evolution in the macro sense, when you adhere to that, that theory that one species can change into something else altogether, that is in keeping with man's long rebellion against God. It insists that God's design is imperfect. It's got to be changed. That he didn't, he didn't uh, really say it is good because it's going to change into something other than what he originally designed. No, he is a creator. And today we still have people saying, I am something other than what God made. And I'm going to do something about it. And that's a rebellion. We're going to stop short of the greatest creation today. I'm going to talk about that next week. You know what the greatest creation that God made is? It's you. It's you. God designed you like he designed everything in creation. And he is a creator. But here's the closing verse. And God saw that it was good. It was good. He creates. He creates and it's perfect. Now it's not going to stay that way. Because what he makes next is going to mess it all up. And it won't be his fault. It'll be on, it'll be on us. And that is what I'm going to leave you with today. All right? I am looking forward to the rest of this adventure. Are you? Okay. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your word. What a blessing to be able to open it, God, and to be, uh, to be shown your majesty, your provision, your design. And as we move forward, Lord, we're going to see uh, obstacles that man creates and how you are going to overcome those, God. And we're, we will continue to marvel. But I pray a blessing upon everybody here. May they stay hungry for the word of God. May there be nothing that satisfies them like your word. And we ask your blessing upon our journey as we encourage and sharpen one another in this family, this community called the Lamb's Chapel. And we pray your blessing upon it all. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.